makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's good for all of us to be here. In addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. And this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. Our studio engineer guide is the Malcolm Byrne, and you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archiving, downloading, and listening. And I'd like to welcome our guest, Nina Wilson, who is a co founder of the Idle No More movement, and she is a Nakota Dakota Nahiwa a woman from the Keku Wistaha First Nation in southeastern Saskatchewan, Canada. And Nina works in many capacities, spiritually and professionally. She loves advocacy work, and that is what drives her. And Nina has a Western education as well as traditional knowledge. She enjoys life, language, culture, singing, and family. Nina is grateful for all who live life, protecting the land, waters, and all living beings. I don't know more started in November 2012 among treaty people in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, Canada. I don't know more. Begin with four ladies: Nina Wilson, Sylvia McAdam, Jessica Gordon, and Sheila McLean, who felt it was urgent to act on current and upcoming legislation that not only affected First Nations people but the rest of Canada's citizens, land, and waters. And these four women from Saskatchewan, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, decided that they could no longer stay silent in the face of what is a legislative attack on First Nations peoples and the lands and waters across the country. And together they organized a teaching event at Station 20 in Saskatoon titled Idle No More. And so we're going to speak with Nina about the Idle No More, the forerunner of Standing Rock, and the current ongoing discovery of children's graves being found within the grounds of the residential and boarding schools, the 139 religious and governmental institutions in Canada, and nearly 400 institutions, government, church, yet to be found, yet to be, yet 
unknown institutions in the United States. So we look forward to that. And I'd like to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. This is Nina Wilson's part one. Welcome to First Voices Radio, Nina Wilson. And I thank you for joining us here on today from way up in Saskatchewan. We started with a question that we wanted to know about you. First of all, thank you for being here, Nina. Thanks for having me. And I think what we want to know is, you know, here it is years after Idle No More. And the reasons why this is, to me, the flashpoint, uh, no pun intended, of why things like Standing Rock and other, you know, places around the world really heard about this, uh, I would say, this this awakening call of Idle No More. And you have a great story that you were telling me about how this was conceived and birthed and actually put into motion. Could you tell tell us about that, Nina? Thank you. Yes. Well, we were. All, we've. I've always been sort of an advocate kind of person. Uh, my mother was like that. She was involved in many efforts to make things better for, especially Aboriginal women or Native women and children. So I just followed her footsteps. She taught me how to be that way. So, growing up, I always had access to the land. I come from ceremony, medicinal, picker people. And we pay attention to the land all the time. We're always out there. When you're always on the land, you notice things that are amiss. You notice things that are off. And I started to notice things like uh, animals are really struggling. Lots of drought, really crazy storms that would just whip out of nowhere and then be normal again. Um, Lots of flash flooding, lots of just... Nothing seemed calm and natural and flowing. It was always... It just seemed so distressed. The animals were no different. They were distressed. Um, some of them were sickly. We, Where I come from, there's lots of wildlife. We have lots of moose, lots of elk, lots of deer, lots of just creatures of all kinds. And when they're in distress, we're, we're trained to pay attention to them. So when we pay attention to them, we notice when things are off. So things were off for, for some time and we weren't allowed to drink the water anymore. When I was a kid, we could just scoop up the water in our hands, drink it, and carry on our merry way, playing, whatever. Eat all the berries, pick all the peanuts, all kinds of stuff. So we, we, we played all day outside. And we, we had a, a grocery store in front of us. I started to notice that there was signage all over my homeland saying, you know, don't drink the water, boil the water, boil it twice. Boil water advisories were up everywhere. And I know that First Nations have had boil water advisory issues for some time, but in my community, it wasn't really a, a situation until um, we have we have oil where my mother was born. There's plenty of oil rigs up there, and there's lots of autoimmune diseases. I believe that they're all related, but lots of people don't agree with me. Anyways, growing up, we I seen a lot of that. So I mean, I didn't see a lot of that, and then getting into my young young womanhood, I started to see it. So we started to gather. I knew Jess Gordon, who was one of the founders. I knew her personally. We did a lot of frontline work, um, mostly in an urban setting, where we would deal with child welfare issues, we would deal with poverty issues, racism, all that kind of stuff, and we worked really hard to try to dismantle or disrupt system systems. And um, there's always a reason why, you know, it's never for nothing. So she and I knew each other personally. We did a lot of work together. And then I didn't know the other ladies yet. 
but we got we got to meet each other and we got to talk talking. I met Sylvia second, and then I met Sheila through Sylvia. They were already acquainted through the work they do. So we were sitting around one day. There was four of us sitting around on the couch, and we were just sort of like going back and forth about what can we do. There was so much work to do, and we were so we all have our own kind of unique specialty, our unique focus, and so we were all kind of wondering. How can we do this work together? What should we target first? How can we do this? We didn't know what to do, so we just sat there and thought about it. And then Jess just got up and she said, "Um, you know, we have to stop being idle no more. We can't be idle no more." And that's how the name stuck. And it had nothing to do with anybody else, any other movement or anything. It was just us and us sitting on our butt. So we got off our butt. Uh, we organized a, a huge rally in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. At the time, I was a grad student at University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and my thesis was on decolonization, and um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I could talk about there, but I won't. I was going to school there, and I was trying to come to the first rally that we organized, and it was impossible. The highways were shut down. There was a huge blizzard. So I, I thought, we all thought nobody would show up, but there was busloads like literally hundreds of our people, chiefs, um, just average bears. Everyone was all together. There was no division of who was what. We were all in the same boat. So we all they all showed up in Saskatoon, and it was big. We had speakers come and talk about certain bills. What we were noticing because of the climate change and because of the things that were happening on our land, there was reasons why. There was a source to all this trauma. And the source was um, colonial interference. And the colonial interference I'm talking about were, were government policies and legislations, bylaws, etc. that were impacting First Nations. And so we were not successful in stopping the bills that were being tra- fast-tracked through. Bills typically take a year to go through legislation. They, they take about a year. But these bills were going through within three weeks, three, three months, to, three weeks to three months which was unheard of. We knew they were being fast-tracked for a reason, so we were successful in ousting that government. It took a lot of work, took a lot of allyship, it took a lot out of us, but we did it. Unfortunately, just because one clown leaves office, another one rolls in. We, we, it, it, we knew it wasn't going to stop there, so we had to sort of focus more on the people. And so that's what we did. We focused on awakening people and getting them moving and getting them mobilized and I have no training in mobilization. I have no training in any of this, but I just got on my shoes and went door to door. Even um, I went to the hood of every city I knew and, I, and that's where our people live. So I banged on doors and I made sure people were at least aware that this was happening. A lot of them didn't understand. A lot of them didn't know what, what I was talking about. A lot of them were on board immediately. They they were just, it was just the timing. The timing was so perfect. And I started speaking with people from all over the world. I'm talking about indigenous economists, indigenous astronomers, indigenous professionals of every kind you can think of. My one inbox turned into 12, 12 turned into 24, then 42, then 76, then 170, 380, 760. It was just climbing and climbing and climbing. There was, it was just, the pace was insane. I could not keep up. And finally, my, my laptop crashed. And uh, 
I was able to just sort of sit back and think for a while. Like, I knew that there was flash mobs going on. There was a lady over here from Saskatchewan. She organized the very first one. She's from, well, she's partially from my reserve and another reserve across the valley. One of the singers from across the valley, they organized the first flash, flash mob round dance. And typically our round dances are ceremonies. They're ceremonies that are for memorials, for grieving. And what they did is they took over colonial space with these memorials. And yes, we are grieving. We're all walking around in a perpetual state of grief all the time. And so there was a lot of um, round dances going on. I couldn't see the footage. I had no time whatsoever to look at the footage. I was just swamped. When my computer crashed, my son started to open a lap, my dad's laptop up and started to show me. He wouldn't let me touch the laptop. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 no. You need a break, mom. And so I, I looked at the footage of all the videos and I couldn't believe my eyes. I just, I sat down on the couch. I cried and I was like, oh my God. Like when you're in the trenches, you don't know what's going on out there. You don't really know because you're so close to it. You're basically right in the middle of a war zone and you don't know what's, you, you can't see it because you're right in it. So sitting back for a bit gave me that time to really evaluate things and look at things. And I started to think about, I was newbie, you know, green. I had no idea how to maneuver around some of this stuff. I consulted with my mother several times, who was very familiar and aware of how movements work and her part in all this. And she used to be a part of the American Indian movement at one time in the past, before she had passed on it. So she understood, and she understood where I was coming from, so she gave me a lot of advice. But I still, there was a lot of things happening. There was um, things I was never, I, I was unaware of, provocateurs. I didn't know what they were. No clue what that was. There's plenty of them. They're everywhere. And they got in really quickly, and they started to do damage quickly. They started to create considerable amounts of divisions. But I had really good people that moved really swiftly to try to help me out. I had some people that took me under their wing and helped me to understand what these were. And when you do this kind of work, you kind of develop the sixth sense. You can kind of tell when somebody's not real or I don't know what that is. I don't even know how, what to call it, but you develop this this sense of knowing. And I think it's in all of us, Indigenous. We, we haven't really been colonized that long when you think about it. We've been colonized here, typically, uh, probably about 200 years. So we're still pretty fresh wild. We're not that colonized. So we still have this in our DNA. And I believe that's what perked me up to what was going on. So very quickly, I was able to step out of some really damaging situations and have some guidance and support from some of the, the all-rounders that knew what this world was all about. That's kind of how it started. We didn't have a big plan on it. We didn't I never in a million years would have dreamt this would happen. I actually went to Rosebud actually just before this all blew up. And I went there just as a cook. My relative couldn't make certain dish. Took me along for the ride because I can. And I just happened to finish the dish in time to be able to go into the ceremony. And in the ceremony, they said something big's coming. And I didn't understand that. I thought, you know, I was going to get a different job. Maybe I'd get a promotion or something type of thing. I'm not really a nine to five person. I don't work like that. I never really have. It's so it I, I didn't know what was coming. And when they said something big was coming, they were right there. Something big was coming. And when it hit, 
we were all just swept into this big sort of frantic frenzy of people just working extremely hard to get free. We're all trying so hard to get free. And um, that's how that's how it all began. We're speaking with Nina Wilson, one of the co-founders of Idle No More, which was founded in 2012. Nina, one of the co-founders was a non-native ally, and I'm wondering what she felt about all the news and upcoming awakeness that even her own people, a non-native, one of the non-native allies, had to go through and endure. What did they feel like, and what did she expect after your talk on that couch on that eventful day? Well, Sheila has been doing anti-colonial and anti-racism work for a long time. She's an educator. And she, at the same time, I think she was going through her master's too. I'm pretty sure she was um, finishing up some type of program, but she was already doing anti-colonial work and anti-racism work. And it just amplified once she started doing it. And she's always had the ability to pull in allies. And she never once stepped in front or tried to be native. Right. She just always was just this white girl that we hung out with. And she did her own thing in the movement. She did her part. She was always invited places to speak from her perspective. We didn't have time to, to take on her role. She could possibly never take on our role. So she just was herself and did her own thing. And I'm glad. You have this whole idea that you went to. Is this Rosebud, South Dakota? And they said there was something big that's going to happen. Was it in Rosebud, South Dakota? Yes. Okay. When I'm thinking about the grieving, let's talk about that grieving because I have interviewed an, an elder who was Cree who said the climate change, the climate, whatever's going on, that's the grieving of the earth. And yet yeah. when I think about what you were doing in the group there, Idle No More, and you described it as this was the round dance and you round dance for the for the ancestors, you, you round dance for the grieving, but the earth is our elder. She's our elder. And when you think about grieving, that led you into a no, an, another type of work to be done, which is probably to me, the biggest work that we have to do as native people is to look at our grieving and how much we have been taken away, uh, you know, because our, our banning of our religions and culture and language and songs and dances, all of that, when you miss that, of course, we're going to hurt. So, but you, you think that that part of the work that still needs to be done? Oh, absolutely. Like when I think about it, just in the last few years, I've really allowed myself to grieve anywhere I have to. If I'm somewhere and I'm in a public place, I'll find some place. If it hits me, it hits me and I'm taking care of myself. I don't care what's going on around me. I have to do that. And so when I've started to do that, the grieving becomes less and less. And so I think that's why our people are in this, such a state of, we're, we're so broken. Like there's so many, there's so many sick, there, there's, there's a lot of us, but we're so sickly. Our bodies are sickly. Our minds, our spirits, you know, we're hurting. That's exactly what this, when the round dances started, there was some backlash. Some of our spiritual people said, this is a ceremony. It shouldn't be in the malls. It shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be there. But these weren't per se the actual ceremony. They were the songs. They were the drums. They were the singers. Our singers never 
get never were ever showcased like that. I shouldn't even say showcase. I don't even know what the word is, but they were never elevated like that ever. I remember being in a crowd so tight that security came and they were taking swings. Somebody in uniform was swinging at these singers and, and connecting them, like physically hitting them. And the women that made a circle around them, we made such a tight fence around them, they could not swing and hit them anymore. And we just continued to stand there. And those singers were singing with tears streaming down their face. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never, ever forget those uniforms reaching around me and hitting, you know, connecting them in the face while they're singing healing songs, you know, it's so powerful. And for us to be able to do that, especially in a place of such um, capitalism, consumerism, these malls, you know, they just, they're the epitome of sh reminding us of how poor we are. We're so poor. And who goes to the mall? You know, we walk around the mall when we were young kids. You know, we walked around hanging out, getting a coffee or a pop or whatever. But to go shopping at the mall was unheard of. We, none of us did it. We could never afford it. So going into the mall, taking over that space and reminding people we're here. We're not just here. We're here in the hundreds, the thousands. There's been malls with several floors, five, four to five floors full I was shocked. I didn't even know that was that much Nietzsche's that lived in the city, but there, it was lots of us. So yeah, the, the grieving that's going on is, it's, it, we still have to work on that. We have to work on it. We have to continue to try to amplify our language, especially our language is so, it's, it, we're, we're, in, we're in distress here. If in the next two, three generations, if we don't have the ability to harness our language and get it back, where it's gone. We're in a state of crisis, and that mm -hmm. crisis is it's depressing. It's very hard. You know, let's talk about the language and that one does not have to be educated to understand the language of oppression, the crisis of oppression where the generations have been affected by the negativity that we as indigenous peoples have been stereotyped as poor as being poor, unhealthy, etc. And but due to the enforcement of colonialism and of course our acceptance of it as indigenous peoples. And in counteracting the language, the language of oppression or languages foreign to us, as at least seeing our way, or at least seeing our way through has been through our ceremonies of condolence, such as the Mohawk uh, have and the wiping of the tears as a Lakota people have and other First Nations throughout Turtle Island and the other peoples in the Western Hemisphere. The earth, this is the point. Like we, we, Everything is for our future generations. That includes the earth. We have to make amends with her. She's... She's the most resilient woman I've ever come across in my life. And mm -hmm. at any moment, she could just say, you know, I'm done. The fed up mother, packing it in, walking away. But she doesn't. She's there. So we have to do our best to try to continue to be good people on Mother Earth. We were given this breath of life for a reason. And I know it sounds really corny and all that, but it's true. We were given a role in this world. And that role is not to, you know, go wage war with everyone. There's something powerful about peace. And I get a lot of flack for this. 
A lot of people will call me a pacifist. I don't even really know what a pacifist is. I have no clue, but I could look it up. I mean, everything is in, in the white dictionary, but I don't want to. I'm not a pacifist. I'll go to bat if I have to. But peace is something really, I don't know. There's an old man from um, Sioux Valley. He passed away. His name was Albert Taylor. And he became one of my most solid go-tos. I went to him for everything. He was fluent Dakota speaker. And he knew all kinds of things. And he, he stood up for me so many times. He's a so tiny man. He stood up for me so many times. And he once sat with me in the van. He told me, Nina, a lot of these movements went sideways. They got violent. They got egotistical. They got this. They got that. But you guys came along and you showed us a feminine power. You showed us something that none of us know how to really quite ingest because we're raised in this patriarchal system and when he said that it just made me feel so much better about everything because i'd rather have peace than this battle but sometimes you have to fight and that's just the way it is uh, i can never i can't ever look at my relatives who go to fight who go to war i will never judge them i'll i'll help them but for myself at this point, it's not time yet, in my opinion, in my eyes, from where I, that's something that was. Nina, my mother is a fluent Lakota speaker, as I'm sure you're also surrounded by fluent speakers. And I was rattling, chattering about how to explain in conceptual form, forms in English, and there were so many words. And at some point, I stepped, my, I stopped myself and ask her if there was a place for intuition in the language I was speaking, which was English. And there was, a, there was a pause. And finally, she said very effectively, son, we cannot speak Lakota without intuition. And that's all she had to say. Your thoughts, Nina? That's right. She's right. That's perfect. You know, the intuition that we carried, even when this was all going on, it started to remind me of how little I know. It showed me how much of my identity I didn't understand. I went through a huge grieving process when this was going on. A lot of people don't know, but I was going through a lot. And that intuition is right. No matter how colonized we become, how traumatized, that, that intuition is still alive within us. It's in our language. Our language is in our DNA. It can't be erased. Not yet. You know, we've only been colonized a very short time. So her words are just, they hit the nail on the head.
All right, this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teok Singh, Ghost Horse, and uh, we're going to smooth that out here sooner or later, folks. Thank you for staying with us. And uh, this is part two of Nina Wilson, who was a co-founder of the Idle No More movement back in 2012 and continuing to this day. You heard the story how it was devised and basically created off of a couch. You know, this was uh, happening to us, and we must do something about what's happening to the earth and to indigenous folks. And again, the flash mobs that showed up all over Canada began to come down and percolate within the United States. And it was about healing basically what was going on, the the crux of toxicity that capitalism brings to the land. When there's too much of it, it's called Washichu or Wendigo in that part of the world in our languages. So I'd like to ask you to join part two with this uh, interview with Nina Wilson and Join us here at First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Back to Nina Wilson. I'm wondering if, if we come from the center, the Chante or the heart, that we of the Western mind and the language we're speaking are, are looking to go to um, the heart, where I hear most First Nations make the distinction or coming from the heart rather than going to the heart from the head. So it's a, maybe semantics about connection, but when relationship is encoded within the language, indigenous languages that I'm hearing and, and their reference to the center, then where are our thoughts really emanating from if they're being oppressed and held down so that we cannot come from the center that we have to conceive and conceptualize everything in thought form process from point A to point Z. And yet we never arrive in a cyclical, a reciprocal thought process of generosity, of appreciation, of uh, respect. And I think that's a mainstay of, of the languages that we are trying to sustain, trying to maintain as indigenous peoples that's exactly right like we have to um we're we're all trained to think colonial we're all trained to think we're all trained to sort of um not trust our intuitive side and not trust what we feel because of whatever reason trauma whatever when it comes down to it that's the truth you know there's and everything and that's what i don't know more was really good for was planting that seed and getting that seed out so that people could start growing and start becoming who they were. And it's a really, really painful process. It is when you think you know who you are at a certain age and something gets thrown at you and you suddenly realize, I don't know anything. I don't even know who I am. That is a huge, when I see that come over people, I see the, the look on their face. I see their, their fear. I see their sadness. I, I almost want to hug them and say, right on. We're where we're supposed to be. Let's go back to who we really are. And how do we find that? We have to become like that seed. We have to become almost like fresh here again because we're so inundated with what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. It's And none of that is ours. It's not ours. We're slowly starting to strip that away and put reinsert who we are. The pause is over. We've paused. How much have we accepted dependency that 
the colonial system has imposed upon our thinking and our languages, our cultures. And we have also accepted what it means to be a warrior, a frontline warrior. It sounds romanticized in the concepts of colonialism, but isn't it our obligation to not become dependent on a foreign system and accept their giving to our rights, to us our rights to be human, rather than than we as indigenous peoples understanding our obligation to maintain the cultures or the consciousness of the earth and not the conscience of colonialism where we become performance Indians living up to the standards of the Westerners, the conscious of colonialism and whether we are doing the right thing or wrong thing according to Western-made human laws without relationship to natural law, where our intelligences of respect, our intelligence of generosity, our intelligence of appreciation, these come from consciousness and these three intelligences that are free, just as healthcare is free among nations and peoples, we are not as aware of becoming washichus in our minds or one who takes too much or takes the fat or even takes the cake, people who just take everything for granted. Dependency thing is really huge. I was raised a certain way. I didn't go to regular school. I went to what they called open schooling. Over here, it's, it was just a little program with all ages in the classroom. I was probably like seven or eight and grade 12 in, in my class. Like there was all different ages and it wasn't about age. I mean, it wasn't about grade. It was about comprehension. And so I don't even know where this, how this came to be. My mother was an educator. She was not an educated educator. She went to residential school. She did her time there and that's about the most education she ever did. But she was educated in many, many other things. And so she she always pushed pushed the barriers. And so I went to school in these environments that were very different. You know, I didn't have this math at three o'clock, write, reading and writing at two. Like, it wasn't like that. It was, there was a lot of creativity. I was always encouraged to be creative. See, when my mother was, when I was being raised, I'm the youngest of my siblings. I am nine years younger than my next sibling. So I was probably like an oops kind of baby. <laughs> I probably wasn't supposed to be here, but I, I got here anyways. And so my siblings are all one year apart. And then there's me, you know, straggling way later. So I came along when my mom was in her healing journey from what she had gone through. So I went, I, I don't even remember the first ceremony I went to. I was just there all the time. I grew up like that. And grew up in those circles, environment, and there was a lot of patriarchy in those environments. Trust me, it might sound romantic, the ceremonies, blah, 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 but there was a lot of things my mom was correcting, and she was doing it with tears, she was doing it with resistance, with not, you know, stepping out of the room when they said women get out, she wouldn't. And so, I grew up seeing all that, and I was, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful I got to go on this healing journey with my mom. And we grew up together. We grew healthy together. And I didn't know that, that, you know, my older siblings didn't get a whole lot of that. They got some of it. My mom was so, um, you know, always trying to survive, you know. So it was always just 
from one paycheck to the next. It was difficult. And so I was very fortunate to have that time to be encouraged to be creative. When I was a young kid, I, I liked to write stories. I liked to write um, all English, of course it was. There was nothing in our language at that time. But I was still really involved in the Cree language. I was very, we, uh, there was a lot of fluency around me. Um, we didn't have access to a lot of Nakota speakers. Dakota speakers. Um, we had some family that did speak. Um, I, my, my grandfather, he had different ceremonies. So there was him, there was those people. But after time, you know, they start passing away. And then you start realizing how little you know, how little you have. But I was raised up with around speakers, around whatever it is they do. So that's something that I understand. And I feel for my average peer, because I know lots of my peers, the women I have friendships with, they weren't. And I see, I see their struggle to accept themselves for who they are. And I know that sounds so not right to say that even, but I have really serious one-on-ones with lots of them. We talk a lot. And until they got more closer with their language and their identity with Mother Earth. They felt like they belonged. They, it was a man's world. It was mm-hmm. always a man's world. And so we're trying to find that footing, that feminine footing again. And not all of us are pretty. And like a flower, lots of us are like the thorns on the rose. We have a job to do. You know, We make you bleed. We'll make you feel. We'll make you be careful around us. Don't. You know, just pluck us out like anything. It's not going to happen. We're going to protect ourselves. And so we're a lot like the natural world, too. I want to talk about that patriarchy that you mentioned and that it's so easily assumed and accepted as if that's the only way to move forward as a people. And yet many Lakota, the spirituality or the Lakota or the Lakota way of life was brought to us as a, as a woman uh, the white buffalo calf woman. Um, and uh, I, I see the patriarchy amongst our own people and the indifference that I've experienced from Native men and even women who have accepted the religions that forced many as children to believe monotheism to a detriment to living earth, to all living beings, and especially to themselves. And patriarchy is a form of oppression. The subjectifying and the objectifying the female to meet Hollywood Western standards. And this is where I want to relate a story about my mother. I think this is an an indication of how much of the culture we are losing. When she was small, she said that when someone who went to the city, who went to get Western education and came home, and they would talk to the people when community gatherings were, were more prevalent among our people, is when this person talked about themselves, it was always in the I, the me, the my, the mine, and really I statements. Well, she said at the end of and during this, their talk or their presentation, the elders would be laughing and just rolling on the floor because it seemed funny, and as in traditional people don't talk about themselves in this in this manner, 
it's like bragging or bazo um, to have pride, too much pride in themselves. And so this show off to take the place of what personal sovereignty meant, what personal value meant to one, rather than having to explain oneself to others to validate their own identification. So this is part of that story of the IE, my, my thought process presented by the West. And, and she's right. Like we, there, that's one of the things like when Idle No More first started, there were so many men that I never thought would turn on me that did. And I felt so, um, like a fish out of water. And I had to keep reminding myself, my mom would keep reminding me, don't, you know, you were raised to look at everybody with their spirit flame. Their spirit flame is what you got to look at. Look at that. Don't look at that. Look at that. And that's what helped me get through a lot of stuff was looking at people like that. I had to, there were so many things I had to look away from that were, and I realized why our men are so, can be so toxic. Our women are no different. We can be too. So the toxicity I'm talking about was, it was beat into them. It was forced on them. You know, I still see it today. I still see a lot of that happening today. And um, a lot of the people that I'm talking about, they went through a lot of trauma. Lots. You know, they went to war. They went to, um, I don't know. They, they've just been, so, been through so much residential schooling, the reserve creation, you know, all of that, being rejected from their own people for things like being, you know, having mixed blood or being um, not able to speak their language. You know, it's not, those things are not our fault. Those are, those are tactics of genocide and those happen all around the world. It doesn't matter if you're Lakota, Cree, or Chinese. It's, if someone wants your power, they're going to take it by any means necessary. So that's what happened to us. And so I try to look at everybody now. It's so hard, but it's much easier when I look at it the way my mother explained it. Look at that fire that grows within them. Are you there to fan it bigger? Are you there to make it bigger? Are you to put it out? The only one who has a right to put it out is the creator. The only one that has the right to put it there is the creator. All we have in this world is the job to fan it. And I don't, I work with lots of people with addiction. And yes, I don't personally have those. I don't, I don't drink. I don't gamble. I don't do a lot of those things. Not because I'm better than anybody, but because I don't want to. I don't want to do those things. So when I know somebody that has those issues, I'm not better than them. It's just that their soul flame is struggling. So am I there to make them struggle more? Or am I there to brighten that flame, to make that flame brighter and healthier and stronger? What am I doing there? And if I'm doing neither of those things, why am I there? So those are things that I think about when I talk about our people. And I know a lot of our men have this patriarchal thing. There's a lot of stuff going on in spiritual country. That's I'm, I'm totally immersed in it here. Totally immersed. You go to any ceremony, people here, they'll know. Who I am, not because I'm some special person, but because I'll show up there. And if there's something wrong, corrupt, like a corrupt thing going on with a woman, with a child, I'll stand up and I'll say something because I have to. I can't just sit back and say nothing. And it's gotten me into lots of situations where it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't good. Oh, well, that's part of life, right? Nothing's ever smooth all the time. So yes, there are things we need to deal with the patriarchy that's in our education system, in our justice system. It's everywhere. 
And once you get people aware of it, I find people get really offended at first and then they become very sad because they know you're right. And they know they're participating in it, but they don't know how to get out of it. When Idle No More first started, there were so many men that, that harmed me that some of them came forward after. Some of them couldn't even look at me. They wrote me letters instead. I'm sorry. I should have protected you. I should have stood up for you, and I didn't. And, and, and I felt very okay with that. I didn't rub it in anymore. I didn't. I just accepted it for what it is because we're trained to be like that. We're taught to survive in this world. But as long as we un- start to understand these two worlds we live in, and when people say we live in two worlds, it's really true. We really do. But how do we work? How do we walk in those worlds? How do we, how do we continue to be who we are in this world? Do we just accept this world? No, we can't. It isn't even a world. It's all made up. And once people that are in that world benefit from that world, thrive on that world, once you can change their mind, the bigotry falls away and they start to heal and they start to become different people. And this goes for every color. This goes for our people too. So we have a lot of work to do and I don't think it's ever going to be done anytime soon. We're, you know, I think catastrophes in the world are going to change us quicker than the work we have to psychologically do. It seems you're speaking of the strength of spirit, of the indigenous spirit, the rootedness, the spiritual technology, so to speak. And we we are not prophets nor predictors, but we have to engage the present. We are not uh, those romanticized natives of, of the past or what we could be in the future. And I've been told that our elders are indeed the future because they went ahead of us who are still here. I'm not just talking about the older in age, but a child can be an elder. And yet in the Western society, we have been, we have them out of sight, out of mind, based on a, on a youth-only mindset. And Earth is an elder, and it uh, seems we have done the same with her, out of sight, out of mind, and out of touch and, dis- and distance as some humans have acquiesced to modern experimental technology. Earth never lies. What do you think about, what do you think that what we have to do is be present to gauge, to engage, so to speak? Well, we can't be anywhere else. We, we can be. We can use all kinds of things to stimulate that, that other reality. But it, it, the, the truth is we're here. What are we doing here? You know, we have to remember that these divisions are created. They're created not just by, I can't even say white people. They're created by uh, a group of people that want power. Basically, we all kind of know that. But it's, it, divisions are created and they're created to keep us all in turmoil so that they don't have to come here personally and do the work that they're doing. They can't anyways. They're, they're long oppressors are long ago. Their systems are still here and they're long gone. How do their systems still fl- flourish and thrive? And it's because of that. So we have to remember that we have to try to continue to um, look at our unity. I come from Cree culture too, so I was listening to these Cree CDs and, and the drumming. Oh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like the West Coast drums, like a real powerful beat. No, t- no tapping on the sides of the drum or light tapping. It was like, I mean business kind of drumming. And I was listening to that and our Cree have adopted that and I thought, how did this happen? And my son came and told me a story about a year or two ago and he was telling me about how the Cree people went to the west side of the Canada or what 
whatever turtle island you want to call it, went over there and they adopted these somehow. How did that happen? Why did they do that? It's because our people were always unified some way. We always kind of helped each other and borrowed back and forth. Sometimes we had to purchase from one another. Sometimes we had to make peace with one another. And sometimes we battled. But we didn't have this concept of conquer. The whole concept of conquer was so foreign to us. And it still is. These drums show me that there is unity yet still. Maybe nobody's looking at it that way, but how did these planes creep from central, central Saskatchewan come up with this drum beat, right? It came from somewhere. And so what I learned is it, it came from the West Coast. So how did we do that? We made allies. We made relationships with the people there. We're still doing it. There, the division is all created. Even this Nakota, Dakota, Lakota. We're not really Nakota, Dakota, Lakota. That's a completely different concept. That is a, um, that's a dialect. That's not really who we are. We have to throw those away. Same with us in Saskatchewan with the Cree. There's no such thing as, well, there is, but they're all dialects. You know, Plains Cree, Swampy Cree, all these. They're all created to keep us, to re keep reminding us that we're separate. We're not. And these songs show up. You know, this, these songs show up and they show us that if you're listening carefully, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear the different tones. You're going to understand there's a difference there. And I don't even know if this is even making sense to you, but when I hear things, I'm always paying really close attention to things like that. And when I hear things like that, it shows me that. It gives me a peace. It tells me that our people are still connected. No matter how much patriarchy, no matter how much oppression, colonialism happens, we're still finding ways to connect and be each other's ally. Yeah, it's this other world that create that that's been created to tell us that we're we're so different, but we're not. Great thoughts to go out on Nina Wilson here on First Voices Radio. I'm wondering because I hear sometimes that the the thoughts of um, what does this have to do with us here locally as we hear this on our local radio station locally is colonialism and and this this resilience we have is everywhere it's in the plants it's in the trees it's in the people around you it's in all nations all people want to survive they want to be they want to feel good they want to feel like they belong in this world and they were created to be here that's how people want to be they want to be okay so this whole construct of this whole construct of who people are is you know, it's made up. We have our own creation stories. Every nation, I've never met a human being on this planet that didn't have a creation story. Well, thank you, Nina Wilson. It's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio. Good thoughts, good, um, good minds, good hearts, good spirits to everybody. And to you up there in Canada and Saskatchewan, locally here um, at this radio station, and where we hear these thoughts. And is there a word in Cree, is there a word that you use to say goodbye? Because as you know, in Lakota, where there's no word to say goodbye. Not really. We say, um, what's that? That means later. See you later. All right. That is Nina Wilson, who joined us from Saskatchewan, Canada. And um, she's been in this area. A lot of Native people. We are community as with the land, so there is no division 
we have to speak this way um, so that you understand uh, our language is that there is no division, inclusion, relationship. And in this way, I want to ask you to listen to this small, small music that's coming up. It's called 500 Years, and uh, it's out of a, a band called Indigenous. It's an indigenous-led Dene or Navajo music collective from Arizona, based in Dewey, Arizona, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'd like to say thank you for joining us. My name is Tiokas and Ghost Horse, and Doksha Ake Wachinktelo. See you next time. And this is Earth Surface People with 
and the smell of ponderosa. Pale brown eyes reflecting on your lips breast. 